Well, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into Titus. Yeah. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, I'm, uh, I thank you for all your word, but I'm very grateful for the pastoral epistles. And uh, give me some direction on what my responsibilities are, my qualifications. And for the church to have a standard to hold leadership to. And uh, yeah, and we just pray that uh, you would teach us more about this small epistle uh, that is loaded with all kinds of good things for us. And uh, it's instruction to a pastor on how to pastor. Uh, and so it's ultimately instruction to the body. And uh, we want to learn and understand. So Lord, thank you for your word. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I spoke with Bethany, and all those doors that we've been praying that God would open, uh, they're all open. So all the girls that she's been connecting with from her language teacher to the, the girls that are, uh, I can't remember if she said upstairs or downstairs, uh, they're all in Bible studies together or at different times. And uh, all those Muslim girls, and she said it was funny because her language teacher didn't understand the gospel. And so uh, she said, well, let's, let's do a Bible study and we'll go through it together. And, and uh, so she's going to go through one of the gospels with her. And so, yeah, so she's really excited. You remember she was experiencing some just fatigue with um, always having to do everything in Arabic. And now she's feeling a little bit energized and excited. So just keep praying for her. Pray for these ladies that their hearts would be open to the truth. Yeah. So anyway, let's, let's get into Titus. Um, as usual, author. Uh, author's pretty easy with all of Paul's letters, I think. And uh, his name appears in the first verse of chapter 1. And then as we go through the book and it looks, and you look at the relationship that the author has with Titus, uh, it reflects what we know about Titus and Paul. Uh, there's nothing unusual. Uh, the people mentioned in chapter 3 are those that are commonly within Paul's circle of friends and missionary companions. Also, the, the writing style, the theology, is what we call Pauline. And, uh, and then the early fathers of the church have all recognized uh, Paul's authorship and cited his work. And so Paul is the author of this inspired epistle. No good reason to think otherwise. The date, now as we went through quite the ordeal establishing the date for 1 Timothy, uh, a lot of those details play into Titus because they are written pretty close to one another, much closer than 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, so... Uh, the letter was written between Paul's first and second Roman imprisonment. Uh, and we would say shortly after Paul and Titus had established or at least planted churches on the island of Crete, um, south of the, the Aegean Sea there in the Mediterranean. And it gives us a date at about 64 or 66 BC. And then, of course, uh, Paul was arrested shortly after that and charged and, and beheaded. Some special considerations, um, the, you know, realizing the history and timeline of things I think is, 
important for us to understand. It gives more context. Uh, This is the second to the last of Paul's uh, pastoral letters, and it's the second to the last of all the letters, period, historically, in, in historical chronology, not just in biblical chronology. Um, yeah, so uh, when it comes to Titus, there's a, an, an interesting detail about him that is very mysterious, and there's just really no way to account for that. And it's that his name never appears in the book of Acts. And I've mentioned this before, uh, and it, it boggles me every time I try to figure out why. And there's just, there's just no way of knowing why Luke didn't bring his name up, especially since Titus was there with Paul so frequently. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's for the same reasons that Luke doesn't identify himself. Maybe Titus said, hey, leave my name out of the, the manuscript uh, I don't know, or maybe it was this the, the biggest oversight of the historian Luke uh, ever. I, I, it's just, I don't know, I've read theories about it, and at the end of the day, there's just no way to explain it. And uh, when we meet Titus uh, or Luke, maybe Luke didn't like Titus, I doubt it, but uh, it's just really interesting. Uh, his name appears uh, in 2 Corinthians eight times. And he's the guy that was sent to Corinth to, you know, kind of help them out a little bit. And he was also the one that was entrusted with all of this money uh, for the poor church in Jerusalem. So he was a trusted companion of Paul's, for sure, uh, to uh, pastor a church, to uh, manage money uh, when he would be on his own on roads between uh, the cities within Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, so his name is mentioned twice in the book of Galatians, uh, and in Second Timothy it's once, but never in the book of Acts. It's so interesting, and uh, we can only guess. Uh, and that his name does not appear in the book of Acts makes it a little bit more difficult to know um, exactly when he became a believer and at what point he really joined Paul on his missionary journeys. Let me give you a few details of what we do know uh, in considering some of the, the especially Galatians. Uh, in Galatians uh, 2, 1 through 3, that's the earliest mention of Titus in the scriptures because we know that Galatians was one of the very first books written early on in church history. Um, yeah. And it says there that Titus joined Paul and Barnabas uh, to go to Jerusalem for the first council. Okay? And the council took place in Acts chapter 15. Now, this means that Titus was among those that were mentioned in Acts 15 too, where Luke says that certain men joined Paul and Barnabas. So he was among those certain men. Uh, we don't know how many were there, but like all of them, their names are uh, omitted. So, yeah. Um, but we can, I think, assume safely that because Titus joined Paul and Barnabas as delegates of the church in Antioch, it would suggest that Titus was a mature believer by this time. They didn't send a new believer, a, a nobody, I wouldn't, that's not a nobody, but somebody that wasn't uh, recognized in some kind of leadership position in the church, somebody that was active in some kind of ministry. And if he's mature by this time, then he was an early Greek convert. 
Okay? And then according to Titus 1.4, he was a convert of Paul's. So Paul led the young man to Christ and discipled him and prepped him for the ministry. We just don't know exactly how early or when. Uh, we can make assumptions from there. Um, but anyway, other than that, uh, he was one of those certain men that went to the, uh, the council. And that's about as close as you can get. That is as close as you can get in the book of Acts to Titus's name coming up. Uh, so we'll figure out someday why uh, he's not mentioned there. Uh, another interesting thing about this letter, the timing of it, um, is that these churches on the island of Crete were some of the last churches planted by Paul. That's very interesting. Which means that shortly after they came to faith, Paul was arrested, charged, and executed for the faith. Uh, I think that that would be a little different for them versus the believers in Antioch or in Galatia, Cappadocia, like, like whatever, like Caonia. Whatever, I, that, that name baffles me every time I try to remember it. Um, but anyway, you know, the churches that were planted early on, uh, discipled, were established for years and years. Uh, for them to hear of Paul dying probably wasn't a huge surprise to them, especially the churches of Galatia and Antioch. Um, but these churches, they're recently established, and then the missionary apostle who established it, he is killed by the emperor. I'd say that it would be a little different for them, maybe a little unnerving. So, yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's important to point out, there may have been some believers in Crete uh, before Paul and Titus got there, because in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter preached to some Cretans that were there. Remember, men came from all over, people came from all over the Mediterranean, and among them are Cretans, and it suggests that some of them came to faith, and most of the people that came to Israel for the feasts went home afterwards. So there could have been believers there. Um, yeah, But it doesn't appear that there was any established church on the island which necessitated Titus remaining there and getting things in order. Uh, Paul told Titus, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set... Uh, in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So that would mean that if there were believers on Crete after Pentecost, after Peter's sermon, um, that was about 27 years earlier, and there are still no elders on the island. So not established, okay? Uh, not only were there problems with church organization on the island, there were problems with the islanders themselves. Okay, uh, Paul actually quoted an ancient writer who said of the Cretans, uh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Titus 1, 12 through 13. Okay. So a whole race of people on this island uh, do not have a good reputation. Uh, uh, I've read, uh, and sometimes you have to be careful what you read, but calling someone a Cretan was the same as calling them a liar. Yeah. I've heard other people say that uh, 
to be like a Corinthian in the ancient world was to mean all these things. And I found that that uh, statement is not historically true. So you have to check in on things uh, before you use them. So, yeah. So I think the question is, knowing that this is generally true about the Cretans, how do you select elders among them, uh, and not to mention a treasure? <laughs> so, interesting stuff. Now let's look at some of the doctrine, doctrinal contributions. Now, I wouldn't say that there's any new doctrines uh, introduced in the book of Titus, and I would kind of hope not this late in church history uh, to have new things uh, arriving. Uh, yeah, but Paul does, as he does in most of his letters, he reaffirms some very important theology, which I believe is at an important time uh, within church history. Uh, being the second to the last letter written by Paul, I think his words possess a different degree of uh, gravity. Uh, there's no degree in the truth or the authority they possess, uh, we would say, from the rest of the Bible. But because they're late in Paul's life and ministry, there's, I think there's something that calls for some sobriety about it. Now, of course, Paul didn't know that he was this close. Uh, and the Cretans did not know, but the Holy Spirit knew. And in hindsight, we know. And I think it's important that when, when we know that it's coming to its end, uh, we should pay more attention uh, to the words that are given. Uh, you know, Moses, uh, he has probably one of the most interesting deaths in the Bible. Uh, God says, I'm going to take you up on the mountain, you're going to die. And uh, so do you think that Joshua was like, now's a good time to take notes, right? Uh, when Jesus was talking about, I am going to my Father. Okay, so the last 40 days with Jesus uh, that Acts is talking about the kingdom, that was probably some time to pay attention, okay? And then the last marching orders they received, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and so forth. And then I think with Paul, especially when we get to Second Timothy, him knowing that his hour is at hand, uh, that these are, these are important words. And so I think the Holy Spirit would say, you need to listen up, Paul's on his way out. Okay, Paul's on his way out. And I'm going to use him for this. And uh, so in this letter to Titus, uh, church leadership uh, comes out as an essential and a requirement. Okay, organized church. People say, well, I'm not into organized church. Well, then you're not into the church of Christ. Okay, because in the... The letters of Paul, the journeys of Paul, it's essential, it's a requirement. Uh, there are these uh, leaderless groups within Christianity. Uh, they avoid titles and positions in their fellowships. But understand, it's not okay. And it's never been okay, uh, not to the Holy Spirit. Uh, even, here's some examples, even where the apostles were present and clearly involved uh, in a church, elders were appointed. Uh, in Jerusalem, where most of the apostles were, the church had elders. Okay, they had leadership, appointed men. Uh, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every single city uh, where they planted churches, Acts 14.23. And the mention of elders with apostles being present is Acts 11, Acts 15. They're mentioned in both. Um, elders were appointed 
to uphold doctrine and theology, okay, to manage church affairs. Uh, Acts 16.4, qualifications are provided so that the church might know uh, uh, what is required of them, who they have to be, and how uh, leadership must appoint them, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Uh, And then the appointment of church leadership was actually commanded by the Holy Spirit, 2 Timothy 2.2, and then Titus chapter 1, verse 5. So elders were, they weren't just essential, uh, they're required. And I would say uh, to many uh, people's dismay that there's not a church without elders. There is no church, not yet. It's not a church until Jesus says it's a church. And a church has, there's certain things true about it. Uh, I mentioned um, uh, a couple weeks ago that you know, people say, well, where two or more are gathered, Jesus says, I am in their midst. Okay, well, if you, you can't quote that, for any context, because there's a context to it. And the context is church discipline, where an issue of disciplining a sinning believer uh, is is necessary. Uh, It only takes two or more believers to do that, and with them is Jesus, meaning his authority to execute church discipline. So he's not saying, I'm in their midst, and therefore you're a church. You understand? A church is, is the, it's those who have been, called out of the world and called together in Christ. And when we see the description of a church in the New Testament, uh, it's not just two believers hanging out. Okay? It's, it, there are things involved. So anyway, so uh, just an issue with leadership. When there's problems with the leadership, uh, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? And have there been problems with leadership throughout church history? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Over and over again. Uh, John, in writing to his audience, uh, he is concerned about a leader named Diotrephes. And John says, when I get into town, we're going to take care of business, essentially. Okay. So when there's problems with leadership, the first uh, thing we do is we seek repentance from the leaders. We seek their repentance. And if there is no repentance... Those leaders need to step down and new leadership needs to be established. And if existing leadership will not step down, the church needs to establish new leadership by going someplace else where there is good leadership. And of course, uh, good leadership then must be defined by the scriptures and not by some arbitrary perspective or personal preference. Because uh, there's a danger in that. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 4 uh, Paul says to Timothy that the time is coming when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, uh, but they will raise up teachers for themselves uh, that will scratch their ears and so forth. And so the scriptures have to be in charge of all this, whether it be the disciplining of a leader uh, and the raising up of new ones. Okay? Yeah. So anyway, uh, also in Titus, there's an emphasis on what is sound and the word is actually a medical term referring to uh, what is healthy, what is wholesome. Okay? In chapter 3, Paul mentions this, uh, no, no, rather, in three chapters, Paul mentions this five times. It's a small book. Uh, he talks about sound doctrine or teaching. That's chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, sound faith. There's unhealthy faith, apparently. 
and there's healthy faith. That's one, chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 2, verse 2. And then there's sound speech. There's healthy speech and unhealthy speech. Chapter 2, verse 8. In chapter 1, sound doctrine is in the context of, of correcting those who have bad doctrine or bad teaching. It needs to be uh, replaced. Remember, the, the uh, Cretans are gluttons, liars, and evil beasts. And uh, he says their mouths must be stopped. He's saying that is a responsibility of an elder to stop their mouths and then correct them in their theology. In chapter 2, sound doctrine is in the context of godly instruction. Then going back to chapter 1, sound faith is related to a proper understanding of the gospel or or gospel truth. If you don't understand the gospel correctly, you don't have a healthy faith. So it needs to be replaced uh, with a healthy understanding, a proper understanding, and then you'll have a healthy faith. Um, in chapter 2, sound faith has to do with godly behavior. And of course, sound speech in chapter 2 is speech that is not condemnable. Not condemnable. Okay. Uh, also in Titus, there's an emphasis on works, mentioned six times in three chapters. Emphasis on works. Uh, it's very much related to the same uh, which is very Pauline. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, Paul says we're not saved by works, right? We're saved by grace. But then he goes in, but we were saved for good works. Okay? So good works follow. Paul says there are works that prove unbelief or disloyalty to God. So there's bad works. Uh, Titus 1.16 I, I messed that one up. It's probably my spelling. Titus 2.7. So in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Okay. Uh, that's actually a reference to pastors doing good works. Because uh, that is specifically to Titus in that one. Uh, good works uh, have nothing to do, Paul says, with the acquisition of salvation. Titus 3.5. Uh, believers should maintain good works for the benefit of mankind. Titus 3.8. Historically, the church has done good works to benefit mankind. Um, and the government has made it harder and harder to do that. Uh, most hospitals used to be... Uh, uh, a part of Christian ministry. Orphanages were part of Christian ministry. Uh, now they're run by uh, the government and private stuff. And um, so, anyway. Uh, good works are necessary for God's people to remain spiritually fruitful. Titus 3.14. Yeah, apparently these lazy Cretans needed to get off their sofa and do something for the Lord. So works are just mentioned Uh, Get your bad works away from you. Understand that good works don't save you, but good works are necessary to be fruitful and they're good for mankind. Yeah. Also, uh, I think one of the clearest statements in regard to the gospel of grace uh, is mentioned in Titus. Um, And not only is the gospel of grace taught, it's also Paul infuses it with the Trinity. So it's a Trinitarian gospel message. He says, but when the kindness 
And the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, Titus 3, 4 through 5. So if you notice in there, there's the Trinity, okay, God our Savior, that's the Father, verse 4. There's God the Holy Spirit, whom the Father poured out on us abundantly, verse 5. And then there's God the Son, Jesus Christ our Savior, the conduit of the Father's salvation, verse 6. It's pretty cool. And then the salvation and justification in the verse, or verses, is purely by God's kindness, love, grace, and mercy. It's by his kindness, verse 4, by his love, verse 4. It's not by works, verse 5. It's according to his mercy, verse 5, and it's by his grace, verse 7. Clearly, salvation is all of God's unmerited favor. It's a, it's a great text. Okay. Um, also, besides uh, all of the instruction to pastors, uh, there's something I think is so essential, uh, valuable in this letter. And you could gather all of this information from Romans and Galatians and everything else and, and perhaps you know, create your theology from that. Not perhaps, but certainly. Uh, but here, Paul just gives it to us in a few verses. Um, and I think what's important about it being delivered at this point is that this gospel committed to Paul's trust, the one that he preached, the one that he risked his life for, it's no longer an experiment. It's no longer an experiment. Uh, he has preached it up to this point, and he's lived it for nearly 30 years. And through rejection, through heartache, through persecution and loss, uh, he was just as convinced or probably more so in the end than he was in the beginning. Okay? Uh, experience and suffering had not depleted his convictions, uh, but he's really driving it home. And I think this is probably the most uh, clearly stated um, presentation of this in all of the New Testament. Yeah. His experience proved that the gospel through and through was the gospel of grace, uh, not just for salvation, but for everything. Okay. Yeah. Let me just present this little detail to you before we move to the passage itself. Prior to Paul's conversion, and uh, in, in the same in Paul's ministry to Jews, Paul and them rested in the law of Moses, <clears throat> being instructed by it, where they believed that they discovered God's will, and by which they could approve of the things that were morally excellent, which made them a guide to the spiritually blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of babes, Romans 2, 17 through 20. That was all that Paul thought and knew before his conversion, that it was by the law, we were instructed by the law, we were the students of the law, it was the law, everything was the law. But after coming to Christ by the means of grace, 
and then living the Christian life by God's grace, Paul concluded that this life, the life that we live for Jesus, is not in subjection to any religious law, but it's completely, entirely under the tutelage of grace. So Paul says this toward the very end of his life. He says to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And then he says to Timothy, speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. You know, it's interesting that he would say that. Let no one despise you in the context of the doctrine of grace. And I have never been so questioned in ministry as I have over my teaching of grace. Isn't that interesting? And I remember that um, when I was in school... My professor of theology said, he says, you always know when you've taught grace correctly, there will be rebuttals. And people will go, what? Because it's amazing grace. It's amazing grace that while we're yet sinners, ungodly, and the enemies of God, that that's when he would send his son to die for us. You guys, that is amazing grace. Okay? And it, we, we, we cannot... Relent from preaching it with conviction. Okay? Yeah. And Paul is saying here in this passage that the teacher is, it's not the law. It's grace. He says it's actually grace that teaches us to reject ungodliness and worldly lusts. Not the law. And grace teaches us, he says, to live soberly, righteously, and godly. It's grace. But he also says, and grace teaches us to look forward to the glorious appearing of Christ. You know, more and more I hear of people that, that they're not really looking forward to the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. They have some of a system of theology that would, that would cause them not to look forward. Well, understand, if, if that's you, you're not the pupil of grace. You're not its student. You're not under its tutelage, its instruction. Because the function of grace causes God's people to look forward to his appearing. His appearing. That's great. Yeah. So, according to Paul in Titus 3, and then in, here in Titus 2, grace brings us to salvation at the beginning of our Christian experience, and grace leads us all the way to the coming of Christ at the consummation of our salvation. It's grace. It begins, continues, it ends with grace and grace alone. There's no room for law. It's all of grace in the gospel of grace. Anything else, as we're learning in Galatians 1, is a perversion of grace. It's a perversion of the gospel of grace. Paul says, I am astounded that you are so soon abandoning him who has called you in his grace and as we go through the letter, it's, they're abandoning him by turning to the law. 
And Paul says to them, You're, you've fallen from grace. And there's all these crazy, haunting warnings. So, and then uh, lastly, uh, there's some instruction uh, in Titus 3, 9 through 11 uh, about disciplining those who would cause division in the church through heresy. Yeah. Yeah. After the first and second warning, get away from them. All right, let's look at uh, some outlines real quick. Pretty simple ones. Um, chapter one, uh, a godly leadership. Uh, and then chapter two and three is a godly laity. A godly leadership and a godly laity. So chapter one, a godly leadership. Of course, we have the salutation in, in verse one through four. And then for leadership, we have their qualifications, verse five through nine. And then we have their responsibilities, verse 10 through 16. And no, I didn't steal this outline from Norman Geiser. This is, this is hot off the press, baby. <laughs> and then we have godly laity, chapter two and three. For older men, verse two. Uh, older women, verse three. Young women, verse four through five. Um, uh, young men, verse six. And it's funny how Paul throws Titus in. So it's actually the instruction to young men is verse 6 through 8. But in verse 7, he throws Titus into there. Yeah, I don't know why. And then, uh, then verse 9 and 10, it's bond servants. So it's all kinds of you know, groups of people, individual groups of people. We move to chapter 3, and then he begins to address the whole church all of the laity collectively, uh, verses um, chapter 3, 1 through 14, and then the final greetings, verse 15. Any questions about Titus? All right. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. Get you out 10 minutes early. Ten extra minutes of sleep tonight. You guys owe me big time. So yeah, next week we'll be um, bringing our petitions before the Lord. We'll have communion together. And we'll meet out, out there. So, all right. Well, Lord, I, I think the, the book of Titus is just so interesting that all of our salvation from beginning to end is the operation of grace. And then as a product of grace should come all of these good works, should come all of this godliness. And Lord, as we mentioned, this looking forward to the appearing of Christ, our, the, our, as Paul says, our, our happy hope, our blessed hope. And Lord, I pray that grace would do its work among us that it would purge us of ungodliness, it would, it would instruct us into uh, godliness itself. And Lord, as we look forward to your appearing, that Lord, it would motivate us to live for you with greater devotion. So Lord, thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you for the good works that you've created us for and that you've placed in our path for us uh, 
by your, your foreordination, Paul says elsewhere, and help us to walk in them. And uh, yeah, Lord, thank you for my church family. I do pray that you would encourage their hearts this week and give them an opportunity to be energized by grace and to do good works for your glory. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.